All right, well, I want to start with a statement that I have been making over and over and over again. You're probably tired of it, but that's okay because the statement is true. And I'm probably going to open up with this statement again next Sunday as well. Biblical leadership, what is it all about? Glorifying God. Biblical leadership is always, always about glorifying God. As a matter of fact, your purpose, my purpose, is to give God glory. I mean, that, that really is it. You can look in the Old Testament, you can look at the prophets, you can look in the New Testament, and everywhere in the Bible, we can see that our purpose in this life, everything that we are, it is to give God glory. We should give God glory with our words. We should give God glory with our actions. Uh, when we started this series way back uh, weeks ago, one of the things we learned is that God created us in His image. And God gave us power. He gave us authority. As a matter of fact, in Genesis, He, he said, I want you to rule over the earth. I want you to subdue it. If you'll remember, He told Adam, I want you to name all the animals. I want you to be the one to rule and subdue the earth. And so God created us with power and authority, and He wants us to use that power and use that authority anywhere and everywhere we are. We have talked uh, over the past few weeks about positions of leadership, which, you know, we'll, we'll get there, but pastors, uh, elders, deacons, teachers, those are what I would call positions of leadership within the church. But we also have talked about acts of leadership. So you may not have a position or a title, but you still have the capacity to lead in different ways, different acts. And we looked at uh, different people in the Bible. We've looked at Joshua, one who had a position of leadership. We looked at Rahab, one who had an act of leadership. She didn't have the position Joshua had, but the moment she was able to lead, it was just as powerful. And so tonight, we're going to really dig in and talk about the church. Now, there's a book that I have read. Matter of fact, I don't even know how many times I've read it. I'm actually reading through it again just, just because it works. But I love this book. I actually had to read this book in college. And uh, I have given this book away to, to friends before uh, in ministry. It's a book called Design to Lead. It's by Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck. And in chapter 1, and I've already told you this, but in chapter 1 of their book, here's what they say. They say, leadership, apart from the work of God, cannot produce true, flourishing, and eternal results. So think about that. What they say in their book, in the very beginning of their book, is that leadership, godly leadership, is what produces true, flourishing, and eternal results. They go on to say this, and tonight this is really the theme of our lesson. And I put this on your handout. Here's what Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck say. The church, the church, and remember the church is not a building, okay? The church is not a place. The church is a people. It's us, the children of God brought together. So here's what they say. The church is uniquely set up to develop and deploy leaders for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel. That's what this book is all about. It's all about how God created us, how God brought us together as the church, and as the church, He has given us the capacity to lead. And it is the church that should be developing and deploying leaders and sending them out into the world to advance the gospel. And in my opinion, this statement that we just made, or the statement that they made in their book, that is what leads us to discipleship. People ask me all the time, what is discipleship? Well, discipleship is where we are learning the Word of God, and we are exercising the Word of God. Learning the Word of God, and exercising the Word of God. And so discipleship actually leads to ministry. Once we learn what God's Word says, and when we start exercising what God's Word says, it leads to ministry. And you know as well as I do, what is ministry? It's meeting the needs of others. That, that's a simple way 
to define ministry. It is seeing and meeting the needs of others. And that might be in the church, but it very well means to be outside the church. Okay? And so that's what ministry is. So discipleship leads to ministry. And I'm going to tell you, ministry will lead to evangelism. When you start meeting the needs of other people, you are going to have opportunities to tell others about God's love. God's love for us that is found in Jesus Christ. So think about that cycle, right? We develop and deploy leaders in the church, and we send them out into homes, into schools, into workplaces, and they see opportunities, right? They've been discipled, they've been taught the Word of God, they begin to exercise the Word of God, and they start to see things the way Jesus sees things, and they start to speak the way Jesus speaks and do, they act out the way Jesus acts out, so they minister, they meet the needs of other people, they put other people even before themselves, and then they take advantage of opportunities to tell people, here's why I'm doing this. Here's who I'm doing this for. Here's why I'm doing this. It's all about God. It's all about God's love to us. It's all about God's love through us, and it's found in Jesus Christ. And so Geiger and Peck, they go on, and they run with this idea in this book. They run with this idea of developing leadership in the church and then deploying that leadership out of the church. And here's what they say. And I'm going to throw a word at you that Might confuse you, but hang with me because I'm going to describe it. Here's what they say. The church should be a leadership locus. L-O-C-U-S. A leadership locus. What is a locus? It is a central or main place where biblical leadership is found or happening. So in their book, they said the church should be a leadership locus. Notice that they did not say the locus of the church is leadership, but that the locus of leadership development is the church. So here's the thing. The center of the church, right? The center, the main point of the church, well, that's found in Jesus. As a matter of fact, here's what they say. The locus of the church is and must always be Jesus. He is the center. He is the heartbeat of the church. The center of the church is the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus Christ died for who? The church. He died for the church. And so the locus, right? The locus of leadership development and deployment is the church. So again, I don't want to confuse you. I don't want you to think that what they're saying in their book is that the center of the church is leadership development. That's not what they're saying. They're saying the center of the church, the heartbeat of the church is Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we understand who God is and how He created us and what it costs God so that we might be right with Him, what we'll understand is that power and that authority and the ability right, to lead, it was given to us by God. And so the church, right, the church will be a locus of leadership development and leadership deployment. And so with biblical leadership in mind, and the church being um, a place where leaders are developed, right, taught, discipled, given opportunities to exercise and to minister and to evangelize, let's talk about biblical leadership from the Bible. Okay, let's look at what the Bible has to say. And I'll be honest with you, I've already taught this passage of Scripture to you just a few months ago. But we're going to look at it again because it's all about the church. So look at it with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage. Uh, It's a lengthy passage, but stay with me. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to go all the way through verse 31. The Bible says, and this is Paul talking about the church, he says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit 
so as to form one body. Whether uh, It says whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts, and I love verse 18, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and uh, that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right here because we're going to talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians 13 and even 14, but, but let's focus on this passage and what we just heard. Paul, he uses the body. That's what we see in this passage of Scripture. Paul uses the human body to describe how the church works together in kingdom ministry. That's what this whole passage is about. He takes the human body, something that we all know about, and he says, here's how the church works. It works like the human body. And so all believers, Jews and Gentiles, Paul says they have been joined together by God through one Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And it is a beautiful picture of unity that can only happen through the Spirit of God, and it can only happen when we are in complete surrender to God. And and so Paul says, hey, God has called us all together, many parts, but we form one body. And that happens through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit that baptized you and fills you is the Holy Spirit that baptized me and fills me. And because of that, we have something in common. We can have unity because of the Spirit who indwells us. God places, and I love this because Paul says this, God places each part of the body where He wants it to be. And the intention is for the parts to work in unison. The parts to work in unison. And what that means is one heartbeat, one voice, one mind moving in the same direction, moving at the same pace. That's what unison means. To be in unison means moving together at the same speed, at the same time, in the same direction. 
And so God put all of these parts together and he intends for these parts to work together in unison. I love Dr. Tony Evans, you know that. One of the things Dr. Tony Evans says in his commentary is this. He says, if every part of the body were the same, it would cease to be a body. The one who created you gave you the spiritual gift or gifts he wanted you to have to use in the body. And so I love that, right? Uh, I think about this. Um, I've been working with some friends uh, who, who all of a sudden they, they want to start running and they know I'm a runner. And so they're asking me advice. They're saying, okay, how do I get started? I just want to run a 5K. What do I do? And it'd be, you'd be surprised because here's what I do. I talk to them about their minds, right? Because running, for the most part, is mental more than physical. You got to tell yourself that you can do it before your feet will ever believe it. <laughs> and, and so what I tell them is it starts right here. It starts right here in the head. But you also have to think about your feet, your knees. You got to learn how to use your hands and your arms. There's so many parts that are moving when you run. But here's the thing. If those part, parts aren't working together, you can forget it. You can forget it. You're not going to run a race. You're not going to finish a race. You're not going to continue to keep running. So I, I love what Dr. Tony Evans says. He says, look, if, if every part were the same, it wouldn't be a body. I mean, think about it. If everybody wanted to be a foot, <laughs> what good's a foot going to do without the leg to carry it, right? Uh, what, what good if everybody was a hand, right? What good is a hand if the feet don't take the hand where it needs to be? You see my point? If everybody were the same part, there would be no body. And without a body, there is no ministry. There is no work that can be done. And so Paul makes it very clear that every part, every part, whether seen or unseen, is necessary. Every part of the body is necessary. And it doesn't matter if it's seen or unseen. Let me give you an example. There were so many people in VBS that worked for weeks and weeks and weeks that nobody saw, right? That nobody saw. Does that, does that mean they weren't important? Does that mean what they did didn't matter? I beg to differ. It mattered, and it definitely made a difference. Whether you saw it or not doesn't change the fact that it was necessary. It had to happen, and it made an impact, Right? So whether seen or unseen, every part is necessary. Too many times we, we can find ourselves emphasizing what we see with our eyes or what we hear with our ears, right? What we see on the stage and we don't even think about the things that are happening off the stage. I'll give you another example. Without that sound booth on Sunday morning, <laughs> it'd be tough. It'd be tough to hear me. It'd be tough to hear Brother Andy, right? Um, how many people, how many people watch our live stream? Without those guys on the camera, they couldn't watch the live stream. Without the one up there who's pushing the buttons, Chris Temple, right, and others, none of that would happen. So whether you see it on the stage or not, doesn't mean that one's more important or one's less important. No, they're all important, and they're all necessary. Not only that, Paul makes it clear, and we see this in his passage, and we'll also see it in Ephesians in just a moment. But God positions offices within the body, within the church. And God gives gifts to all the members. To all the members. Don't miss that. He positions offices, but He gives gifts to all the members and there's a reason. It is for the edification of everyone. The edification of all. So the body of Christ, the church. I love what Dr. David Jeremiah says, and I didn't put this on your handout. But Dr. David Jeremiah says the church is a tangible, that means you can touch it, you can see it, right? You can hear it. It appeals to the senses. Dr. David Jeremiah says the church is a tangible expression of who Jesus Christ is. I love that. He is love. He is light. He is life. 
Dr. Jeremiah says the church is a tangible expression to the community of who Jesus Christ is. Love, light, and life. Think about that for a minute. Can our church be described as that? A tangible expression of who Jesus Christ is? Can our church be described as life and light to the community? I I hope so. Not only that, he says God gives us positions of leadership offices and he talks about apostles and he talks about prophets and then he talks about these gifts, right? So all of these gifts that God gives the members, right? The parts of the body. Why does he give them to us? Well, he gives them to us to edify the church, to edify everyone. That word edify, I'll I'll make it easier. It means to build up. Edification means to build up. That's what it means. And so Paul says God gives the gifts to the members so that the church may be built up. And here's the reason. A church that is a tangible expression of Jesus Christ, a church that is demonstrating love and light to the community, a church that is building up, right, edifying one another, is a church that glorifies God. What is biblical leadership all about? Glorifying God. What is your purpose? Your purpose as an individual. Your purpose is to what? Glorify God. So how would that be any different for the church, right? If someone were to come to me and say, Brother Jeff, you know, what's my purpose? What does God want from me? I'm going to say, God wants you to glorify Him wherever you are, whatever you're doing. If that same person were to say, well, what is this church all about? What's the purpose of this church? I'm going to answer it the same way. The purpose of this church is to glorify God. To glorify God. When Paul says to eagerly, I want to kind of move to that last couple of verses, verses 30 and 31. When Paul says to eagerly desire the greater gifts, right? He's not talking about coveting. He's not saying, man, I wish I was the pastor, or oh, I wish I was the teacher, or oh, I wish I had that gift, or oh, I wish I had that gift. He's not talking about coveting greater gifts. What he's talking about is valuing, place value on those greater gifts. Place value on those greater gifts. The reason I know that is because because Paul goes into 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, and he talks about those greater gifts. As a matter of fact, what is 1 Corinthians 13? What do we call that chapter? We call it the love chapter, right? And, And many times we as preachers, we'll take some passages out of 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll use them in these things we call weddings, right? When we talk about bringing a bride and a groom together, We'll talk about that love chapter. But think about this. 1 Corinthians 13 came right after 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how that works? 12 came after 13. Or 13 came after 12. So he talks all about the church. And then all of a sudden he talks about love. When When that passage of scripture was written, it wasn't written with the marriage of a husband and a wife in mind. Now, can it be used? Absolutely it can. But chapter 13 came right after he was talking about the church and how God put the church together. And then Paul, in the very last verse of 12, says, desire the greater gifts and let me tell you about the greater gifts. And then we get 1 Corinthians 13. So, to put it in a short statement, biblical leadership, that is developed and deployed by the church must be founded and grounded upon God's love. That is the greater gift. That is the greatest gift, love. Think about this. In the book of Romans, when Paul was talking in chapter 5, he talked about God demonstrating His love, right? He says... God demonstrated His love for you in this, that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. I would say that most, if not all, the book of Romans is about God's love. Don't you think? 
right? All he talks about is God's love, God's love, God's love. And so now he's talking about here's how God put the church together. Here are the offices that he has positioned in the church, right? Here's why he put those offices in the church. He gave these gifts, and why did he give these gifts? To edify, to build up the church. Well, here's the thing. You ain't going to build up the church without love. You can have all of the other things, but if you don't have love, what do you have? What does Paul say? Nothing. Yeah, read 1 Corinthians 13. You can have all the other stuff, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. It's like a bunch of clanging cymbals making a bunch of noise, just a bunch of racket. So biblical leadership has to be, has to be founded and grounded, right? It has to be founded and grounded upon for us to move forward as a church. It's love. Dr. David Jeremiah, and I will tell you this, Dr. David Jeremiah says from chapter 12 to 13, Paul explains that the best gifts are those that edify the church the most. All of 13 presents a comprehensive explanation of God's love, biblical love. And here's what he says. It is a priority commandment. It is the most excellent way of 1231 that surpasses all other ways. And it is seen in detail, God's love. That's what Dr. Dave Jeremiah says. He says the best way that Paul was talking about in 1231 is found in 13. It's love, God's love. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Again, when, I, when you talk about prophecy... Someone asked me one time, and I'm just going to share with you what I believe. I'm going to share with you my heart, and I'll even tell you what Dr. David Jeremiah says. Someone asked me, uh, are there modern-day prophets? Are, are there prophets? Yes, I do believe that. But there's a difference between prophets in the Old Testament and prophets in the New Testament and prophets today. There's a difference. The prophets in the Old Testament were working with Scripture, Right? Scrolls that were barely written. And so they were delivering the Word of God as they heard it. Prophets in the Old Testament, they were just explaining the words that were written. Let me, let me tell you how Dr. David Jeremiah says it. He says it so good. He says, Prophets in the Old Testament were those who proclaimed the very words of God before it was written down many times. A prophet in the New Testament and a prophet today is one who proclaims the very words of God that are already revealed in the Scriptures. Prophecy in modern times is also called preaching. Prophecy today, right, is just telling you what God's Word says. That's what it is. That's the difference between Old Testament prophets and prophets today. He says prophecy in modern times is preaching. And he says it is the first means by which the body of Christ is strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. So, so Dr. David Jeremiah says, hey, we got to have those prophets. Because those prophets are preachers. They're delivering the Word of God, but they're delivering the Word of God that has already been written down. That has already been given to us. Okay? If someone comes to you and they tell you, let me tell you what God said. And you say, okay, what, what passage of Scripture can I find that? And they say you can't find it in the Bible? You better look out. You better look out. I'm just telling you. If they can't quote the, the book of the Bible and the chapter and the verse, I'm just going to say, okay, that's the words of a man. And listen, it might sound good. And you might can find some scripture that lines up. But you don't need to be listening to nobody that can't point you to a book of the Bible, a chapter of the Bible, and a verse of the Bible. You understand? That's how people are led astray. We call those cults. And we call those cult leaders. I'm just going to call it what it is. Okay? That, that's right. So, 
Biblical leadership, biblical leadership, right? Just as it is founded upon God's love, biblical leadership that is developed by the church and deployed by the church must also be founded and grounded upon God's word. I'm just telling you, I can't stand up here and talk to you about biblical leadership, right? Without talking about God's love and God's word. If it's anything else, it's not really biblical leadership. Again, listen, I can point you to books like this all day long. And, and this is a great book, okay? But what they do is they point you to Scripture. Every time they make a point. Like for example, I just opened up to a chapter on conviction. They talk about this in their book. Biblical leaders must have conviction, right? But they don't just say biblical leaders must have conviction and listen to this story. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you that. You know what they do? They say, go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Go look at Romans. They point you to Scripture. So make sure anytime somebody's trying to tell you something, make sure it's founded on God's love and it's founded on God's Word. And if we are truly going to be a locus of leadership, right? In other words, if we're going to develop leadership and deploy leadership, we got to be standing on God's love and God's Word. And that's what we got to build upon. So, Paul also spoke to the church in Ephesus. And I'm going to go a little quicker here. But in the book of Ephesus, Paul spoke to the church about preaching and about teaching its purpose um, internally and externally. Listen to what he said. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read a few verses out of chapter 4. Let's start with the first seven verses. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So again, if you read this passage of Scripture, you might be going, oh, well, Paul's talking to uh, this individual or that individual. I beg to differ. He's talking to the body. That's why he says you were called to be what? One, right? He's talking to the body, so he's talking to the church. So this is a passage of Scripture that's not just about Jeff living his life the way God wants him to live. It's Jeff living the life that God called him to live in the context of my brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. And so this is about all of us. Again, Dr. David Jeremiah, I love this. He says, the calling of God's children. This is so good. Three words. The calling of God's children is a holy calling. It is a humble calling. And it is a heavenly calling. And I put some scriptures on your handout. You can go back and look at those a little later. I, just, I don't have time to read them all to you. But it is a holy calling, a humble calling, and a heavenly calling. And think about it from this perspective. Jesus told His disciples that biblical leadership is different than worldly leadership. And we've already covered this. Do you remember in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus was talking to His disciples? He pointed to the Gentile rulers and leaders. You remember? He pointed to them and said, look at those guys. Look at how they're leading. They're using their power and their authority and they're lording it over their people. And then He turned around and looked at His disciples and He used four words. Not so with you. That's what He said to them. Mark chapter 10, verse 43. He said, not so with you. In other words, I didn't call you. I didn't empower you. I didn't enable you to lead like that. They are lording it over their people. What did Jesus say you're supposed to do with your leadership? Serve. That's what He said. You're supposed to serve. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. So Paul in this passage, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-7, through seven, he basically tells us that biblical leadership... 
that is developed and deployed by the church should be marked in four ways. Number one, humility. Biblical leadership should always be about humility. He says it should be about gentleness. So we're to take that power and that authority that God gave us and we're supposed to use it gently. Use it with gentleness. Here's a good one. Patience. Any amens on that one? Yeah, yeah, I, I need that. I need that desperately. I'm not a patient person, right? Probably as far as my leadership goes, that's, that's what I'm, God's working on that. Because <laughs> I'm not patient. And if I'm not patient, it's hard for me to lead with patience. And I understand that. But Paul said, hey, that's a mark of biblical leadership. Humility, gentleness, patience. And then the last one, forbearance. Forbearance. That, that means forgiving others. The only way, right? The only way this is possible to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to, to have forbearance, to be forgiving is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul says. Hey, you've been baptized. You've been baptized with one spirit. You've been filled with one spirit. You can. You can lead this way. These qualities, right? These marks of leadership we can't just sit around and talk about them in the church. We have to exercise. We have to exercise these marks. Exercise these qualities. We can't just talk about humility. We have to live humbly. You know, we can't just talk about gentleness. We have to be gentle. We can't just say, oh God, I need patience. We have to be patient. <laughs> right? We can't just say, oh, you should forgive. You should forgive. No, we have to forgive. Biblical leadership is not just about talking, it's about walking, it's about living out loud. Uh, another great quote uh, out of this book, and I'm giving you pretty much all of these quotes tonight, I won't, won't use this much moving forward, but uh, another quote in this book, Geiger and Peck, I love this, he, they say, as God-appointed leaders, Christians are not called, or not just called, to have power and authority Christians are called to use, listen to that, use power and authority to do what? To serve others. So God didn't just say, let me give you some power and authority and then you just do whatever you want to with it. No, God gives you power and authority and His intention is that you serve others with it. But that goes against the culture of our world, doesn't it? That's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of what we call counterculture, Right? It goes against the nature of our world because the nature of our world is if I'm in control, um, you work for me. You do for me. If I'm the boss, then you do the work, right? And I just sit and watch. That's, that's what this world, that's really the nature of this world. But remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Not so with you. In other words, you don't lead like the world leads. You lead like I lead. And Jesus, just a couple of verses later in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 said, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come for you to do for me. I came to do for you. And that's what he told his disciples. He goes on, Paul does, and I'm just going to read this last passage and we'll close. He says this in verse 11. He said, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. So right off the bat, what does he do? He lists some offices, right? Some offices. And then here it is. Here's why Christ gave those offices. Verse 12, to equip His people. If you've ever wondered what your pastor is supposed to do, verse 12 tells you what your pastor is supposed to do. He is supposed to equip the people. For what? It says to equip His people for works of what? Service. He's not here to tickle your ears. Right? He's here to equip you so that you can serve. Ooh, that's, that's powerful. To equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be what? Built up. That sounds a lot like what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 the church is supposed to be edified, right? It's supposed to be edified. 
He says, so that the body of Christ may be built up until, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every kind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. In other words, the ways of the world. The ways of the prince of this world, the devil. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in what? Love. Isn't that amazing? Biblical leadership should be founded and grounded on love. It says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head. Who's the head of the church? It ain't Brother Jeff, I can tell you that. It is Jesus Christ. It says, in every respect, the mature body of Him who's the head, that is Christ. From Him, from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. As each part does its work. Don't tell me you don't matter. You do matter. Don't tell me it doesn't matter if you don't serve on this team or that team. It does matter if you serve or you don't serve. It does matter. And that's not Jeff. That's not your pastor. That's God. That's the Scripture. Every part matters. And every part's work matters. That's how God Put it together. And so God appointed positions. You've already answered this, but let's put it on, put it on paper. God's appointed uh, he, uh, the positions in the church. They are used by God to equip. To equip His people for kingdom service. God appointed positions in the church. He uses them to equip His people for kingdom service. It starts with the pastor. That's the pastor's priority is to preach the Word of God in such a way that it equips the people to do what God created them to do, serve. God-appointed positions in the church are used by God to build up the entire body, to edify the entire body, build up. And then Paul tells us, he gives us four goals. So here, here's, the, here's the thing. As a pastor... These should be my four goals. As a deacon body, these should be four goals. As Sunday school teachers, these should be four goals that we have. As a member of this church, these four goals should all be the same for every one of us. Here it is. Goals of biblical leaders in the church should be, number one, unity in the faith. That should be a goal. Unity in the faith. Number two, knowledge of Jesus Christ. Number three, maturity. A goal of us ought to be to mature. What does that mean? That means we ought to look more like Jesus every day. We ought to look more like God's love. We ought to look more like God's light and life to this world. So number one, unity. Number two, knowledge of Jesus. Number three, maturity of the body. And number four, the fullness of relationship with Jesus. I can tell you this. Brother Brandon and I have talked, and I know as a staff, we we talk all the time. The most important thing we can do when we talk to individuals in our church, when we talk to groups in our church, is for them to know who Jesus Christ is, to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And our job is to cultivate that relationship. Our job is to, to continue to point you to the Scriptures and to point you to Jesus so that you just want to spend more time with Him and you just want to grow in your relationship with Him. Our goals, right, starts with me as a pastor. It's funneled through our deacons and our teachers. And it ought to be your goals too. Unity in the faith. Knowledge of Jesus Christ. We just want to know Him more. Maturity, right? Maturity for the body. As a body, we want to look more like Jesus. And then the fullness of our relationship, right? We just want to be in such sweet relationship with Jesus that that it's how we start our day. It's how we keep moving in our day. When we lay our heads down at night, we can just say, Thank you, Jesus. 
for speaking to me today, for listening to me today, for walking with me today. Thank you for the full relationship that I have with you. Man, those are some incredible goals. And again, I know I've shared a lot of this book with you tonight, but I've also shared a lot of Dr. David Jeremiah with you. And uh, I'm kind of jealous because my wife got to go hear him preach uh, a couple of years ago when she went to San Diego. I still have not been able to see him and hear him preach face to face, but I sure am glad I can read his works. Listen to what Dr. David Jeremiah says. What happens when the church functions the way God created her to function? What happens? Here it is. When the church functions as designed by God, six things happen. Number one, believers are equipped. What's the job of those offices we just read about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16? Equip the people. So here's what he says. When the church functions as it is designed by God, six things will happen. Number one, believers are equipped. Okay, that's discipleship. Everybody with me? That's discipleship. Number two, ministry is enhanced. Remember what discipleship leads to, or it should? Discipleship should lead to ministry. Seeing the needs of other people and meeting it. So here we go. Believers are equipped. Ministry is enhanced. The church is edified. What does that mean? Built up. In other words, one person ain't trying to do it all. Oh no. Now the other parts are kicking in. And the foot's doing what the foot's supposed to do. And the hand's doing what the hand's supposed to do. And the eyes are doing what the eye's supposed to do. And the tongue's doing what the tongue's supposed to do. Oh, yeah. That's edification. That's building up. So, believers are equipped. Ministry is enhanced. The church is edified. Guess what happens when those three things happen? New believers. New believers are established. New Christians are established. The church is effective in the community. And when the church is effective in the community, the church is enlarged. Isn't that amazing? Six incredible things. When the church functions the way God designed her to function, six incredible things. Believers. Believers are equipped. Ministry is enhanced. The church is edified, built up. New Christians are established, brought in. The church is effective in the community and the congregation just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know about you, but I want another worship center. I'm serious. I I want another worship center because that one's too small. And start Louisiana, that's what I want. I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm giving you one of my goals. My goal is that too small. We got, we got two options. We can knock a wall out and add more pews, right? Or we can take that land that we got on the other side and build a bigger building. Use that one for something else. And, and we can sit here and go, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't you know how many people are moving in to start? I remember, I remember, I know Miss Tammy and some of us that, that used to live north of, of this church Right? I remember when I could walk out in my mama's backyard and there wasn't nothing but cotton fields, Elliot. Nothing but cotton fields and trees everywhere. Now when I walk out in my backyard, my mama's backyard, I look to my left and there's houses all out in those pastures. It ain't no cotton fields no more. It's houses. I remember Southridge. Some of y'all live on Southridge. I remember when Southridge didn't have a house in that field. And then I remember when it had one house, Johnny Hoychek, Right? I remember when his little lonely house was out there for all them years by itself. Now go drive, drive down Southridge. Somebody tell me how many houses are in Southridge? Yeah, enough to yeah, enough to go trick or treating on that street and have way too much candy. Right? Here's my point. Here's my point. If that many people are moving in and houses are going up, why ain't the church growing in proportion? Why, why ain't the church growing in proportion? Right? Think about that for just a minute, right? Now, I understand they may go to church here or they may go to church there, but I'm going to tell you there's a lot of unchurched people living in Start Louisiana. There's a lot of people that ain't going to church nowhere, right? So don't tell me that that's a crazy goal that we got that building is, 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 too, is too big, Brother Jeff. It ain't too big. If you was here this morning, you understand it ain't too big, right? 
It's too small. Because we couldn't have put no more, no more people in there this morning. We had chairs out, and that, that was the next seat available, was one of these, right? That's a good problem to have, by the way. That's a great problem to have. But we don't, we don't enlarge the church, right, without the other things. And I believe they were listed in order. Believers are equipped. Ministry is enhanced. The church is edified, built up. New Christians are established. In other words, salvation. The church is effective in the community. And then the congregation enlarges. That, that's truth. And that's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. So, like I said early on, biblical leadership is always about glorifying God. I'm going to end with this. Biblical leadership that is developed and deployed by the church will always glorify God. In other words, don't give, don't give your pastor credit. Right? Don't give your children's ministry credit. Don't give this one or that one credit. You give all credit to God. You give all glory to God. Can you say thank you to someone who serves? Absolutely you can. Can you respect and honor someone who serves? Absolutely you can. But you save the glory for God. Because He's the only one that deserves it. And He's the only one that should get it. And that's what biblical leadership is all about. It's about God's glory and nobody else's. Right? It's not about, it's not about promoting me or promoting this team or promoting that team. It's about pointing to God. And that's when you know, that's when you know God's fixing to do something. And I'm going to be honest with you, God's been doing some stuff here. I believe it. I've heard it. I've seen it. But God ain't done. God, God still got some doing, right? God still got some doing to do. And God's going to use me and you to do it. Isn't that cool? His church. His church is the one He's put in place to do the work. And so that's you and me. So get on board. Get on board and do your part. That starts with believing that your part matters. You might say, well, Brother Jeff, I don't really serve on, on the budget and finance team. Or, Brother Jeff, I'm not a Sunday school teacher. Or, you know, Brother Jeff, I don't do this or I don't do that. Hey, listen, if you're looking for something to do, I can, I can find something for you to do. Because there's a lot of stuff to do, right? Um, Today I saw, saw guys, right, that don't have a title, don't have a position. I saw them loading up trucks and loading up luggage. And I saw them escorting people across the road, right? You don't have to have a position to be a leader, right? There are positions of leadership and there are acts of leadership. Every one of us in this room have the capacity to lead somehow, some of us will be called in a position. But all of us will be called to act at some point. So just be faithful to that. You matter. You matter. No matter what team you're on or not on. No matter what title you have or don't have. You matter. And your service matters. And nobody else can do it but you. Because God gave you that calling. And God gave you that gift. So do it. Do it for His glory and do it for the edification of the church and see what happens. Amen?